I think that as we approach a crisis or a change in political consensus, and that means the leadership of the central bank and central bank policy and treasury policy will be involved in that. I believe that there will be a rewriting of the past, because I think that when we kind of change the narrative that surrounds political legitimacy and the social contract, there's this desire to make it seem like a compelling story. And I think as we were discussing with the changes to the CPI, changes in how we look at CPI data and interpret it are going to be part of a big narrative change. It's funny how they slip these things in there. You know, they're they're pretty upfront about it. It's not a secret. It's not done, you know, behind closed doors and they don't tell anybody. In fact, they publish it on their website, on the uh, BLS.gov website. They have a notice about methodology changes in how the consumer price index or the CPI number is calculated. And they're making a shift starting with the next CPI print that basically eliminates 2022 from the math, <laughs> just kind of smooths everything out and uh, creates an entirely different result, but they're still going to use the end number, whatever percentage they derive from that, as if it is the official inflation and they'll they'll derive Fed policy from that. The market will respond to that, even though how they've calculated that number will have completely changed in one month. This leads into a big conversation about why the fundamental assumptions of having a Federal Reserve, a central bank that manages interest rate policy for the whole world is completely flawed. Because we have to remember that even before this latest change to CPI calculation methodology, the CPI has gone through many changes. And so there's a website called Shadow Stats that calculates the CPI using, they claim, the 1980s methodology. The problem is Shadow Stats is not transparent. They won't tell you how they calculate it. And so all these alternative employment, all these alternative CPI methodologies, to be honest, I think they're a little kooky. And I'm not saying the CPI is good. One issue with the CPI that I think is becoming more apparent is that owner's equivalent rent is this very weird data point in the CPI. And what it really does is it tracks housing inflation from two years ago. Why is it in there when it's just like, why do we care about housing inflation from two years ago in today's CPI print? Yeah, it seems like super old signal. Well, because if you include home price metrics in the CPI, then the CPI gets incredibly volatile and scary whenever home prices increase or decrease. And so because home prices, you know, real estate prices are actually incredibly volatile, which is weird because everyone thinks of a house as such a great investment, right? Well, that's really recency bias because a house has been a great investment since 2008. Okay, it's only uh, 15 years of data. I like to picture homeowners looking at the value of their home price on a like Bitcoin price chart or a stock price chart. I just imagine a homeowner with a second monitor that has a browser tab up that shows the current real time price of their home. Right. <laughs> if people thought of it in that way, I think they'd be surprised at how much it does fluctuate. And the thing is, if you price a home in a nice place in the U.S., say Los Angeles seems to be a popular city or San Francisco or New York or Austin, your chart of a home of an average house price will just be this sort of 45 degree line up. It's just increasing in value every year. And then there, you know, if you take the sample once a year, then you'll probably miss the big dips in the market and it'll, and it'll just be this kind of smooth line going up if priced in dollars. If you price it in Bitcoin, it's basically a logarithmic function running to zero. Even today with 
the price of Bitcoin at a kind of a bear market bottom of 16,000, it's still your house <laughs> price. If you start the chart at the beginning of Bitcoin around 2009, your the price of your home has just plummeted yeah. in Bitcoin terms. That's funny to think about. I can tell you don't watch the price because it's currently $19,236. It's gone up. We'll get into that. This is the Bitcoin dad pod recorded on January 13th. 2023. I'm your Bitcoin dad, and I'm here as always with me. Hey, it's Chris. Welcome back, everybody. So on today's show, we're going to cover some news in the space. A crypto lender we've complained about for a while is being raided in Bulgaria. Nexo, they sponsor a lot of podcasts in the crypto Bitcoin space. And everyone who took their money is complicit in their Ponzi scheme, one man's opinion. There's something in Ethereum called Wire. It's apparently insolvent. We want to cover another goofy crypto insolvency. There's one. Arthur Hayes has a post about SBF, but he really kind of transitions into a macroeconomic view based on really Alex Gladstein's work with the IMF and Zoltan Posnar's view of a multipolar world based on commodity money. It's interesting. I think we can be critical of it. Might be a good discussion. There is an interesting overview of global central bank digital currency projects from the American banker. As we discussed in the pre-show, there's some changes to the way the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics calculates CPI. And then we will have some feedback, including an email about how you actually buy Bitcoin. We'll have some thoughts on that challenge. And then we got a huge number of boosts this week, which is kind of a surprise. So we'll get into all that. And some great ones in there, too. I'm really looking forward to it, especially that how we buy Bitcoin, because you and I started talking about that before we hit the recording. Like, oh, 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 all right, let's save all this, save it for the show. So I have more thoughts. I have more thoughts on that. Do we first cover the insanity of Sam Bankman-Fried having a substack as he's awaiting trial? Yeah, why don't we get that out of our system? Yeah. So generally, when you're being accused of crimes that carry a combined prison sentence of somewhere between 115 to 150 years, you shut the hell up, right? Yeah. And I guess that maybe there are some different assumptions in how Sam is going to deal with this case. Perhaps it's inevitable that he does a plea deal, or maybe he thinks that because there's some financial complexity to this case, he can confuse a jury and obfuscate the truth to the point where they might let him off. But I have a different theory. I think that Sam's lawyer has identified that Sam will not shut up. It's just not possible for him. He's got, he seems pretty ADD and maybe he just is compulsive in his use of social media. So I think that the Substack is a way to at least prevent him from tweeting in real time so that he creates a draft of the Substack and then his legal team can review it. So he incriminates himself less possibly. You know what? I, I really think this is it. It's such a simple explanation for what seems to match the personality traits that we have observed with SBF. I think you can probably think of other well-known people in the spotlight that couldn't resist the temptation to tweet, even when it was probably not advisable. There's something about a personality type where they just have to get it out there. And I knew I was going to have to read this for Substack. I read it so that way you don't have to, listener. So you can count on Chris taking that for you. And uh, I, I cringed all the way through it. It's giving that guy more air, I suppose. Um, I read the whole thing and I my my honest assessment is, is that Sam is currently in the process of believing what he sells. And I've I've 
been familiar with other extreme narcissist personalities that they are their biggest fan and they are their biggest supporter and believer. And they, they, they generally have a filter in which they view the world and it is everything they do is awesome. They are awesome and everything is going to succeed and go the way they think it should go because they're brilliant. When I read Sam's Substack, that's exactly the vibe I take. Uh, he still thinks he can fix all of this. He suddenly has a bunch of personal assets. He, he mentions his Robinhood shares and at least three or four times in this post alone and probably three and in other times in other venues, I've seen him claim adamantly that FTX US is fully solvent and that he didn't want to declare bankruptcy, but he was forced into it by lawyers and that uh, if he just had a little bit more time, maybe another couple of weeks, he would have had the funding to cover this entire thing and there never would have been an issue. Everything would have been fine. And he believes that everything would have probably just worked out if it wasn't for that darn CZ. And if he hadn't tweeted on that one, as he puts it, fateful evening. And the whole thing is, uh, it's like this version of reality that paints him as both a super genius that can strategize, but also somebody who made honest mistakes. And, you know, it wasn't really in charge of Alameda. And it's really all kind of Alameda's fault. I agree with you. It really reads as someone who has no concept of personal responsibility. See, you see that sometimes. I, think, I feel like people talk about people like this and then fail to recognize them in their own life. But there are people who do not have the ability to take personal responsibility. He virtue signals responsibility. Or with effective altruism. It's virtue signaling responsibility when it's actually just doing whatever the hell you want. In his leaked draft to Congress before he got arrested, in there, it starts with, I effed up. You know, who's going to hit him with a big, strong curse word right there at the beginning? His, the first sentence, well, actually, his first sentence is, let me start with saying, under testimony, I effed up. And like you say, he takes like this virtue signaling responsibility, but then as he explains the situation, it's CZ's fault. It's Alameda's fault. He was just a couple of weeks away from solving it and keeping customers whole. Pay no attention to the millions we spent on our mansion, to the millions we spent flying packages from Amazon on private jets, to the millions we spent on politician pets. You know, pay no attention to any of that, the, the loans we gave each other. None of that is, is bad. It's just how a small business operates these days. Right. Every small business gives the founder a $500 million personal loan. Of course. And of course, and of course, the leadership team all shares passwords and wallet keys and lives in a home together where they have group sex. That's a totally common thing. And we're not criticizing that lifestyle because, I mean, if you can get group sex in a mansion in the Bahamas and it's all consenting, I, I think you should go for it. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a little jealous. I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is just it's the reason why I like to mention it is because I think it actually speaks to just maximum excess in all things all the time. Excess in eating, excess in partying, excess in spending. You know, if you wanted to order something from Amazon, they literally would book a private jet to fly that package to the Bahamas. Jesus, the carbon footprint of that. That's incredible. Yeah. Meanwhile, he's claiming to be donating to environmental causes and he claims, I mean, he would publicly slam Bitcoin because of its energy footprint. Right. I don't think you get to complain about Bitcoin's energy footprint when you own or rent or lease or use a private jet. It's incredible. Yeah. You don't get an opinion about the environment if you have touched a private jet. I, I think that should be, that's a reasonable rule. That's a disqualifier right there. Uh, <laughs> So he's going to be substacking now. You're probably right. The lawyers will probably review it. The entire thing is, I think, to build a narrative that, uh, oh, he also tries to, you know, I, this whole uh, mini, mini Madoff thing, it, it just got ahead of me. You know, I just, I was, I was so busy running the numbers that I didn't get a chance to get ahead of that narrative. But now I want to set the record straight. 
you know, and people who want to buy it, like the New York Times and Kevin O'Leary, they'll buy it. The people that need to. But to me, it's it's just sort of embarrassing. And speaking of embarrassing, we didn't include this in the summary, but Gemini is now being sued by the SEC because their Gemini Earn product, which was completely invested with DCG's Genesis Global Capital Hedge Fund Lending DGEN program, was actually an unregistered security. So this is hilarious because the, is it Tyler or the other one? One of the Geminis has been sending these Twitter letters to Barry Silbert, the CEO or chairman or owner of Digital Currency Group, which is the parent company of Genesis Global Capital. And the Winklevoss is saying, oh, boo-hoo, we had school teachers and firemen who invested in our Gemini Earn product and Barry took all their money. So bad. Give it back, Barry. And the SEC has chimed in and said, yes. And by the way, Winklevi, that Earn product was an unregistered security and we're coming after you. It's beautiful. I'm surprised the uh, Winklevoss twins were stupid enough to get into this. I mean, maybe. The reason why I am surprised is Coinbase flirted with this and the SEC said no. And Coinbase publicly had to abort and they had to do a mea culpa on their blog apologizing for not being able to launch this product. You'd think that would have been the warning sign to Gemini that this is going to be an issue. And BlockFi got a $100 million fine from the SEC for a completely similar program. But maybe you should describe the program just so we're super clear on everyone who's not paying attention. Sure. Well, it's a great deal, Dad. So what you do is you take your asset that actually has a unique property that you can hold it yourself, you you know, store it offline safely. And what you do... Is this for my Bitcoin, my Ethereum, my Dogecoin? Which one? You name it. All of them. Yeah, you got some stablecoin too. In fact, they got their own dollar. If you put it in that, you might even get a little bit better rate. So you, what you do is you take your keys, you put it up on their system. They got a great UI. I have to give Gemini credit for that. They have, I think, the best UI of all the commercial exchanges. And you put it in there as like a savings account because it's, you know, making you money and you're saving, you know, because they have your keys. They're saving them for you. Oh, a savings account. That means it's FDIC insured, right? Because all savings accounts are FDIC insured throughout my entire life, right? Now, you see, FDIC is old legacy banking system, and this is a revolution. We're going to unbank you. You don't need FDIC insurance because Ethereum and Doge and Bitcoin, they're all going to the moon. It's only going up. And decentralized, right? <laughs> totally decentralized in our facility where we hold it ourselves for you. So, you know, it, it's it's a typical kind of like a Celsius thing too, a sort, just like the BlockFi thing and the Nexo stuff. You put it in there. It's an account that give you a yield on it in theory. And of course, they're deriving that yield from their gambling in the market. <laughs> that's, where that, that's where that profit comes from. And then ultimately what ends up happening, what happened which in the case of Gemini Earn, is they didn't have a balance to cover everyone's withdrawals. And when people started to think something was up and they tried to take their money out, there wasn't enough to cover everyone and they had to shut down withdrawals. And so that's why the firefighter and the mom can't get to their funds is because now withdrawals have been turned off at Gemini. And Gemini is supposed to be like one of the premium exchanges that was born out of the ashes of mistakes of Mount Gox. And I think that this is a good time for us to give each other some high fives because I think we were very consistent throughout the bull market that these earned products are insane because Mm -hmm. the idea of a crypto savings account is really, really stupid because there's no real world activity other than very fringe things that you can't invest in that runs on crypto. Wow. Sounds like that just shot down Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't have any real world use cases. That's not true. What I'm saying is there isn't an economy that uses Bitcoin as its native token. Bitcoin's a superior money, but you don't 
do finance in the superior money. You do it in the inferior money because you want to get more of the superior money. So there aren't businesses that have all of their costs in Bitcoin. And therefore, if you're borrowing Bitcoin or any other crypto, it's not to do real economic activity. It's to do financial speculation. And financial speculation is by definition, zero sum. All financial speculation is based on the premise of buy high, sell low, or use a derivative product that sort of swaps those two relationships. But basically, you're getting someone else's money. Financial speculation is zero sum. It means there are winners and losers. And that means it's very dangerous because what if the person who borrows that money is a loser? You would need to have a diversified portfolio of entities that you're lending to to balance out the winners and the losers in your portfolio of loans. Does that make sense, Chris? It does. And if there was something that was safe and reasonable that they could invest into and get that yield and then pass it on to you, you could likely just invest in that thing, whatever it was directly. Yeah. And their yield wouldn't be 5% because what actually happened was there is no market for crypto lending except for a few huge borrowers that were all the same borrowers. And so the entire crypto lending market was basically the three arrows capital and Alameda Research and these degenerate, crappy, stupid hedge funds. And so what happened with Gemini is Gemini had all these users who bought crypto and held it on their exchange platform. And then they sent out emails and notifications and encouraged users to put their funds in the earn product. And once they're in the earn account, they take that crypto and they sent it to Genesis Global Capital. And Genesis Global Capital, they told Gemini, oh, you know, we get 8% on our loan and we'll give you 7% of that. And then Gemini took that 7% and gave 5% to the users and pocketed 2%. So it was a great deal. And But actually, what Gemini was doing was they were just dumping those coins into DeFi, into Three Arrows Capital. They were giving them, they were doing really reckless, degenerate things. And the Winklevoss, they're now saying, oh my gosh, we didn't know. We thought that Genesis Global Capital was taking our customers' funds and investing them in serious businesses. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm sorry, you're investing Dogecoin in a serious business? Come on. Come on. These guys have been around long enough to know better than that. I mean, if he believes that, then he needs to be relieved of his position as a manager of a serious company because he is incredibly stupid or he's disingenuous and a total hypocrite. And I think it's obvious that they're hypocrites. Just to uh, kind of uh, back up your point there, Gemini, when you buy something or when you add put put money on the exchange, because I've I've tested around on Gemini as a DCA option. So I looked at it. And when you buy something, like say you buy a little bit of Bitcoin, it, it immediately, the next screen encourages you to put it in their, in their earn program. Like, would you just, instead of depositing this in your wallet, would you like to just directly deposit it into the earn program instead? <laughs> like they really, they really push it. However, that said, I bet you what happens here is the SEC gives them a nice big fine, but because they weren't directly running the program in most cases, they were outsourcing it. You know, I think they're going to get off with a big fine and that's it. But this is also, I think, a bigger story in that the SEC is now going after multiple entities 
in the crypto space right now. They are pursuing multiple. Binance's offices were just raided. I'm not sure by who. Uh, Nexo's offices were just raided. We have like multiple different law enforcement actions happening in the scam coin space, specifically around securities, which you and I, like you mentioned, even since the bull run, have been saying are extremely problematic. And these earn programs are a red flag, just like just like a crypto having its own stable coin, its own token that everybody uses is also a red flag. These are elements that make these platforms dangerous. Absolutely, because you run into the founder problem that every altcoin project has once you have a any business issuing their own token because they've created money out of thin air. Now they need everybody to behave like it's money. And these exchanges have ways to incentivize people to hold their token by giving them discounts on their trading fees or making altcoin projects buy the token in exchange for getting listed on the exchange. In some sense, the exchange is directly making money from selling the token they printed out of thin air. But that's not actually how the financial system works. The way you make huge amounts of money is you get some people to buy the token and then you say, hey, look, this token has a price. So the 90 billion units that I've kept on my own balance sheet, that's worth billions and billions of dollars. And therefore, I can now borrow against it and I can lend against it. My exchange is well capitalized because my FTT, BNB, Nexo, Cell, whatever my token is, it's worth so much. So I'm not a Ponzi scheme. I'm not a fraud because the token I created out of thin air is worth something. And look, it's right there on my balance sheet. The subtext, of course, is that they can never actually sell that token. It's not really worth that because they're using a very simplistic market cap calculation. They're not taking into account the fact that the market is completely liquid. And if you tried to sell anywhere near that amount of token, the price would go to zero like it did with, you know, Terra Luna is a good example. There were many, many Terras or Lunas or whatever the, the token in that ecosystem was. And when someone tries to sell 400 billion Luna tokens, the price is zero. And there's really no difference between the Luna token, the FTT token, the Nexo token, the Cell token. All of these things are worth zero when people really try to sell them. It's like we have to learn the lesson over and over and over again. Humans want to create and control their own money so bad. Literally the most profitable thing to do. Everybody wants the, uh, you know, the cheat code to life. They, like if you can create and print your own money, it's almost like having a, a cheat code to life in the, in the West right now. Well, speaking of cheat codes and the West, Nexo is a centralized finance DeFi crypto lender. I don't know why I said DeFi in there. I'm not sure if they do DeFi, but they're one of these platforms like Celsius. They're essentially a neobank, a shadow bank, you deposit your crypto as if they're a bank, but they have a complicated contract where they technically own it the moment you give it to them and they will do whatever they want with your crypto. They'll never give it back. We covered a story where there were some people who had a lot of money on the Nexo platform and Nexo refused to let them withdraw it. They removed the withdrawal page from the website when those people logged in, like their version of the website didn't have a withdrawal button and they had to negotiate with Nexo and then Nexo kind of stole most of their money in exchange for giving the rest back. Oh, man. And Nexo is based in Bulgaria. They grew out of, uh, I think, a payday lending company. And if that makes you think, gosh, a payday lending company in Bulgaria, that kind of sounds like a mafia front operation. Well, that was my impression too. I have no evidence that that's the case, but that was a thought I had. And I don't think that being raided by 
300 prosecutors from the Bulgarian General Prosecutor's Office. Uh, well, that, that kind of sounds like an anti-mob operation. So basically, it was an obvious next scammy platform to run into trouble. And now it has. But I don't think that there's a lot more that we know at the moment. Nexo says that it was an illegal action that they'll be suing. And they released a statement saying that unfortunately, with the recent regulatory crackdown on crypto, some regulators have recently adopted the kick first, ask questions later approach, Nexo said. In corrupt countries, it's bordering with racketeering, but that too shall pass. That's wild. Luckily, their owner, Antony Trenchev, got to Dubai in fall of 2022. So he is beyond the reach of extradition. He knew something was probably heating up, didn't he? Interesting. That's it. That's so many, so many crypto people are fl- uh, fl- uh, fleeing, I guess. I was going to say flocking, but it's actually probably fleeing to Dubai. The thing that strikes me about this, there is one element that is true, is I think we are seeing crypto regulation via enforcement. We're not seeing crypto regulation via elected representatives making laws. We're just seeing regulatory agencies kick down doors and essentially establishing law that way. I agree with you. I think that there's an idea that traditional finance was not regulated by enforcement. And I don't think that's the case. I think that financial enforcement has always been very difficult and heavy handed. And that generally speaking, there's innovation, quote unquote, in the field of finance, and there's a huge amount of fraud. And then there are some egregious examples that are sort of too ugly to ignore. And then the regulator comes over and kicks a few teeth in. And then they basically make an example of the violators and shake their finger at everyone else saying, okay, now you guys self-regulate. And the reason is that even the U.S., which has the sort of biggest regulatory institutions in the world, the SEC is not able to fully regulate the TradFi market. They need companies to self-comply. And so they have no hope. They just don't have the resources to go after 10,000 altcoin scams. It's just not going to happen. They only go after the obvious scams, the most brazen. And frankly, things like FTX, that it's a Ponzi scheme, but it looks really good on the outside. It has serious investors, etc. There's just zero chance they're going to go after them until it becomes obvious that it's a that it's a crime because it's complicated. They don't have the resources to go through their books and deal with a firm that can hire high priced lawyers, frankly, in my opinion. I think the only thing is where I feel a little bit disappointed is regular plebs are getting burned first. So instead of the and, and then and these regulatory bodies sort of cloak themselves and we're protecting people, we're protecting the common person from hurting themselves. It is us who saves you from the scammers, except they actually only come in after the scams are done, after the money's been drained, after the money's even been spent. That's when they come in. That's when they kick down the door. And it's like, OK, great. But you're really just going to, you know, you're going to just create 10, 10 years of legal fees and you know money for lawyers and no one is ever going to be made whole you could have if you could have if we could have had the elected representatives create law before it got to this point we could have prevented people from getting burned i know it wasn't likely ever to happen but you know what i mean like it's disappointing that still they cloak themselves in this aura of protecting people and that's why we're here and that's why we're important but when you actually see it in practice they don't show up during the party they show up like three days after the party and the house has been trashed and everybody's left and drove home drunk and they beat up everyone with a hangover, whether or not they were (laughs) just walking by. Yes. I mean, I think you're getting at the fact that 
we live in a world with a lot of systems that are essentially extractive. Gladstein's article on the IMF and World Bank and how they're part of a financial system whose fundamental structure is to channel raw materials from developing countries to developed countries. And they just don't care about the human costs. They don't care if that means supporting dictators. That's what they're going to do. Financial regulators are composed of people who work for the largest financial firms or aspire to one day. So they're never going to work for you or I. We don't at any point give those regulators money in the form of a job or professional connections or anything. So of course, they're not going to protect us. They're going to protect the institutions and wealthy corporations and individuals that can help them out in the future. So while it's frustrating to listen to these patronizing remarks from Gary Gensler, oh, I'm here to protect consumers by shutting down the Gemini Earn product after it's already lost everyone money. Oh, and by the way, I'm also probably going to hit Gemini with a fine that'll come out of possibly any monies that are recovered from the Genesis Global Which debt. gets paid before any customers ever get made whole. I feel a little torn, right? Because I'm not a burn the system down kind of person. I don't think that's constructive. And I don't think there is an example in history where people have rebelled and sort of destroyed all the institutions of their unfair society and then had a good time. Look at the Russian Revolution. Russia was a autocracy with slavery until something like 1864. They, uh, it was an incredibly unequal, unfair, insane society. But then when they had their Russian Revolution, they produced you know, basically Lenin and then Stalin. And Stalin, you know, Stalin's killed more Russians than anyone else in history. So when we encounter unfair systems, I think it's important to everyone, everyone stay calm. You know, we don't want to lose it. You know, we have to find a way to sort of incrementally reform and change and, and push for sort of more positive change. Because, you know, if uh, tempers flare and people get so completely disillusioned that they are not interested in sort of engaging with complicated problems and trying to solve unsolvable issues and you just get frustration and rejection and violence, then things get really, really dark. It seems like the first step in all of this is educating people about what is actually going on. You know, I'm proud to say I think that's part of what this pod does is it it's kind of like uh, we always kind of return to the mean. We always return to reality in this. It's always the numbers and the reality with what's actually going on. And I think educating yourself around that, like the more I learn, the more motivated I am to think, well, how do I change the leadership? Right. How do I elect different leaders? How do I you know, because that's where my head goes. And I think that's probably the direction to take it. But you only get there by people learning why things need to change and how they could be better or how they should be better. Something to ponder. Do you want to take a stab at Vitiligo? Yeah. Okay. So this, I have to say, now I, I have not read the entire piece, but so far it was probably the most compatible Arthur Hayes piece with my, with my noodle since you've been introducing me to these. I, I like that he's essentially giving us an SBF update, but he's framing it in these massive macro conditions where you have what he calls Pax America and Eurasia. And of course, Pax America really being the West, you know, America, Europe, you know, UK, our, our rich friends, basically Western Europe and uh, wealthy allies. And then you have, of course, Eurasia, the combination of China and Russia. And when you look at the Ukraine war and you look at what's going on with the macroeconomics in that lens, I think you really start to see how all the pieces fit together, even where like the war comes in, where SBF comes in. So 
I haven't got through the whole thing, but so far, I think this is one of my favorite that I've read. Yeah, that's a great introduction to the piece because Arthur is done with Sam Bankman-Fried. And I think, frankly, we are too. There's, We're not going to hear anything interesting from him. And FTX is ultimately kind of a boring, run-of-the-mill, financial fraud, bad corporate governments situation. But Sam is kind of a symbol of the Western elite of someone who went to all the right schools, had all the best opportunities. And look at him. He is morally bankrupt. He is a total scammer. He should go to jail. And it's interesting that at this moment of shifting geopolitical and economic consensus, we have an example of the absolute hypocrisy of Western leadership and institutions in the form of FTX. Now, reading this article, you can kind of tell who Arthur follows on social media and who he reads. There's a lot of Zoltan Posner in here who has this concept of a Bretton Woods 3 or Bretton Woods 2, which is a new gold and commodity-based world order moving away from the dollar. So how does Arthur get to that conclusion? He points out that Asia has been the majority of global GDP until about 400 years ago. And so I guess the assumption is, well, why does don't things might revert back to the mean? And so Asia becomes the big driver of world GDP and the amount that Europe and North America produces, consumes, controls, shrinks proportionally. I think that's actually not a very good argument because GDP was essentially one-to-one correlated with population until the Industrial Revolution. So there's no reason that we would return to sort of pre-industrial growth trajectories. I think that's kind of not logical. At the same time, he makes a point that as of 2018, China is the biggest trading partner with something like 75% of the world. And it's completely replaced the U.S., who used to be the largest trading partner with the world in the 1980s. So in 30 short years, China is now the largest counterparty to global trade. What's odd is that we're still using the United States money in a system where China's the dominant trading partner. And I guess that, in my mind, raises the question, is China really a dominant trading partner? And I think sort of no. Obviously, China has become the quote-unquote workshop of the world. They have have a lot of domestic chemical supply chains and other electronics and important commodity supply chains that mean that a lot of parts of the global supply chain-based economy need to move through China. But why did all of those processes and businesses and supply chains move through China? The answer is that the Chinese Communist Party essentially subsidizes the price of goods produced in China, and they get that cheap price because they're willing to sacrifice air, water, soil, environmental quality, and and also domestic compensation. Wages are or wages were lower in China than they would have been otherwise in the absence of the Chinese Communist Party's policies of capital controls that prevented Chinese savers from pushing their funds overseas to protect them from inflation. And a lot of the infrastructure that China built that enabled it to be a very competitive, cheap global partner in trade, this infrastructure was paid for by the savings of Chinese people who were not allowed to save their money however they liked. They were forced to save it in China in 
crappy, speculative financial products and savings accounts that gave below inflation yield. And the difference, the money was actually used by entrepreneurs, but also by the Chinese state to build out this whole infrastructure that made China very central in global trade. Obviously, China also had really great demographics, a large working age population. But here's the thing. The demographics have shifted. The population is shrinking. They can't do the same sort of low value added labor anymore, because even in 2016, it was becoming impossible to hire workers for jobs in factories that were very physically demanding. You no longer had generations of farmers coming to the city and being like, oh, wow, uh, standing at a production line making widgets. This is so much easier than plowing my own field with hand tools that I could have gotten from the 12th century. You know, we ran out of those farmers. And so the ability to add more low-wage manufacturing workers also disappeared. So I think that China's trade trajectory is probably going to be different in the future. I'm not saying China is doomed or anything like that. I'm just saying it's going to be different. And I don't kind of buy the idea that China is going to remain as the sort of biggest, fastest growing trade partner around the world. I think that China's share of global trade is probably going to shrink. I don't think that the U.S. is going to necessarily increase its share of global trade. I think that there are potentially other places that could develop a little and sort of hit that sweet spot where they start kind of being trade destinations. And this is part of the whole idea of anti-globalization, of regionalization, of onshoring, essentially fewer international supply chains, more domestic manufacturing and systems. And, and that, of course, will feed into higher prices around the world. Do you suspect that Arthur's position here is China is going to be bolstered by the war in Ukraine and by perhaps the weaponization of the SWIFT financial system and things like that? And that because of this proxy war that's happening in Ukraine and the deepening of ties that creates between Russia, India, China, you know, Iran, whatever it might be, like, the, you know, these political ties are getting stronger. And so does you think his position is just that is going to prop China up and keep China one of the major players in that Eurasia block? Potentially, China's always going to be a major player in their block. That's just an identity. But I think this means that we have to move away from the dollar, because if we're no longer creating globalized supply chains that essentially deposit goods in the developed world that were made in China, if, if we move to more a, a different economic model, then Staying on the dollar is becoming way too costly, especially for political blocs that are unaligned with the U.S. Russia was already burned. China, I imagine, will refuse to be burned. And that actually is why the Belt and Road program, which has been kind of a big failure for China because it was this program to take their dollar surpluses. And instead of subsidizing U.S. government and military spending by buying treasuries, they invested them into Central Asia and Africa to try to create projects that would send raw materials to China and also to um, create political connections to those economies. And it was very similar to IMF and World Bank projects. It was incredibly extractive. They were using the same financial imperialism model, though, frankly, I've heard anecdotally that Chinese projects on this Belt and Road platform were much more environmentally destructive than your standard IMF project, just because Chinese companies and contractors who were doing all of the work, they're just that much more reckless than your sort of Western 
firm that would have done that. So basically, there have been signs that we're moving away from a dollar standard, I think, at least since 2016. But that seems to be accelerating now. What's odd, though, is that we still don't know what the future financial rails will be. We think it's probably going to be related to Bitcoin. But our next piece about central bank digital currencies also kind of gets into how the traditional system is desperately looking for alternatives to our current dollar-based financial system because it works when you're in an era of peace, global peace, no one's fighting, no one's disagreeing, the trust that the traditional financial system needs to work is there. Everyone's feeling it. But now now we're not feeling it. Now China knows that their foreign dollar assets could be frozen just like Russia's. So what do we see? We see Russia and China accumulating more gold on their central bank balance sheets. We see more capital controls in around the world, Japan, Korea, China. When we start to see capital controls in the US and Europe, I think that we can pat ourselves on the back again, because that's a sign of a changing international monetary and financial consensus. I wonder where it goes, though, right? Because I don't think they they don't just go, oh, well, clearly we need something we can all trust and something that's scarce and something valuable. So we'll go Bitcoin. I don't think that's their instinct. Their instinct is we go CBDCs and we go layers of CBDCs. We have central bank CBDCs. We have commercial CBDCs for the plebs. You know, we have just this whole new scheme of blockchains that they're all going to try to connect to each other. And, you know, we always know how well that works out, too, when you connect blockchains. (laughs) But that's my sense. Not that they'll go, oh, well, clearly Bitcoin. Oh, absolutely. Because it kind of gets to this issue we touched on in the pre-show where we have the Bureau of Labor Statistics producing this super flawed CPI number. And part of the reason they produce it is they kind of need to have this number to adjust benefit payments. So there's every incentive to keep the number low. But then because everyone's looking at this number, it kind of becomes important, even though it's based on pretty weak underlying methodologies. Hold on. I did not realize that was the BLS's incentive. Of course, that makes sense. I've always wondered why a different organization that was in charge of the CPI would go out of their way to bring it down when it seemed to benefit the Fed. And they I thought was their Fed influence there. But of course, of course, because they're collecting that data to calculate benefits. And if they keep the number lower, their payout is lower. And so then the Fed uses that number as if it's the official blessed state of the you know inflation in the economy when they both have incentives for that number to be low. A low CPI number also helps the U.S. government borrow at lower rates. So there's every incentive to kind of miss the actual CPI, whatever that means. One thing I noticed in the document was part of the way they're changing CPI calculations is they're changing the way they calculate inflation for cars. And that's actually a classic example of how the CPI is a really problematic measure because the Fed uses this concept of chain inflation. And it means that when you look at the price of a car and you compare the price of a car from 1995 to 2023, you have to calculate the cost of taking a 1995 car and upgrading it to a 2023 car, which is insane, right? No one would ever do that. And it would be so expensive because it would be like bespoke work. But that's a way to say, yeah, this $75,000 pickup truck in 2023 is equivalent to this $10,000 pickup truck in 1995. What? Well, how does that work? Well, because this one in 2023, it's got the power windows, it's got the 
heated seats. It's got the, you know, computer controlled steering. It's so great, you know, and it's like, no, it's not. They're both cars. They go from point A to point B. Everything else is just fluff. But of course, if you did that, inflation would be even higher. And we would have had this panic about inflation 10 years ago instead of today. Yeah, that's true. It does feel a lot of like incentives line up to make these numbers match up so that way things can proceed the way they need to. And that's why they're not going to be inclined to want to go to a Bitcoin standard because it is the exact opposite of that kind of set your own reality. So Arthur's piece is a big rambling read. It ties a lot of things together. I think you can tell from the way we're describing it. We don't come away with a hot take or a therefore you should go and buy X. It's a big subject. And I think it's just kind of a a good perspective to look at because you'll find stuff in there that you think you'll probably won't agree with. But it leads nicely into this piece on CBDCs. And I want to read you a quote. A well-designed CBDC can help provide a real-time view of risks and currency outflows to help implement specific and targeted measures to prevent financial contagions from spreading further in the event of a crisis. Holy crap. The assumption being that we need a centrally managed financial system and essentially a CBDC, a central bank digital currency, is a way to centrally manage your entire financial system. And then it goes ahead and lists the, what is it, eight CBDC projects around the world that are look a little legitimate? In total, actually, there's 100, according to American Banker. There's actually 100 different ones, but yeah, there's about 70 in research and development that are actually active and about 17 in actual pilot programs around the world. The interesting thing about this process that we've commented before on articles, maybe even from American Banker, about the banking system, finance professionals looking at CBDCs, is the creation of the CBDC almost makes them question and think about how their current system works. And one takeaway is, gosh, CBDCs are probably going to kill the commercial banking system. And if we believe that creating loans to fund new businesses and existing businesses is an essential part of a modern economy, then CBDCs will be an economic growth slash economy killer because we won't be able to do lending the same way with a CBDC. We might actually lose the commercial banking sector and the central bank would now need to essentially be a retail bank with loan officers in every city who businesses can talk to and say, hey, Fed officer in Atlanta, Georgia, I'd like a loan for my news agent store. You know, that's insane. Could you imagine that at scale? Having to interface with the Fed on an individual level? Not going to happen. Not possible. They're not they're not built for it either. And so, of course, they're going to create a two tiered model, a CBDC for the big banks and a CBDC for the plebs. And they're all going to have that central control aspect, because, of course, the one lesson from the last decade of finance is the one problem with central banks is they just don't have enough control. Even the commercial pleb chain that the commercial banks are going to get access to, the central bank's still going to be able to turn on and off individual dollars remotely. So they're still controlling it, even though this commercial banks have to have their own separate CBDC, theoretically, in this model. And they're really, this American banker piece, they're really, really trying to, I would say, allay concerns in the commercial banking sector because there's multiple times in here, multiple times, where they make explicit statements that they're trying to build this so that way that there is a place for the middleman in the system. They talk many times about not disrupting the intermediaries. They talk many times about how the commercial banks will have a role in this model. 
And they even make it sure that they say, this is a quote, they will retain clear roles and responsibilities with plenty of room for competition and innovation within the ecosystem. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. And it's not going to work out that way. (laughs) Give it a read just to get a snapshot of what's going on in CBDC land. But there are so many problems here. So let me just throw out two. Okay, one issue is if you end up with a central bank digital currency that the Fed uses between the Federal Reserve and authorized counterparties like commercial banks, and then a different currency that you and I use, regular people use, you're going to run into the exact same problems with non-fungible monies that exist in the current Fed system in the form of quantitative easing when the Fed buys assets is generally producing bank reserves, not U.S. dollars. Bank reserves are these deposits that are U.S. dollar denominated that certain financial institutions store with the Fed. So that's kind of why over the last 15 years, people have said, oh my gosh, the Fed balance sheet is growing. We're going to have hyperinflation. And then there was no hyperinflation because the growth was in bank reserves that certain institutions can hold. They couldn't take these bank reserves and go and buy yachts and apartments and caviar. They could use it to take more leverage to speculate on certain financial assets. And so it blew this massive financial bubble. Well, they're describing creating a new type of money that would be non-equal to other types of money. So if you want to create another system with low growth, with a lot of overhead complication, you know, it's uh, this is how you do it. It's not going to change anything in terms of economic growth and efficiency. It's going to add more complexity, more systems that can break, more systems that require a middleman to go between the wholesale central bank digital currency and the consumer-facing controlled digital dollar currency that might be bank-issued, might be central bank-issued. It's a terrible idea. A second point is we've covered the CBDC bridge project that involves Iran, China, and um, Russia, also the Bank of International Settlements Embridge project that involves European banks. But what are these projects? They're essentially a layer that connects multiple CBDCs, but it's a trusted layer. So it doesn't solve the trust problem of traditional finance because the The point of view of central banks and centralized finance is, okay. we need to build a permission layer on this because, of course, you know, we can't just let anyone use it. You know, we're in charge of this thing. And so because they have that centralized, hierarchical, we're in control mindset, everything they build will not work. I'll leave it at that. Uh, And I would just underscore it by saying it's just a doubling down on a philosophy and a series of policies that haven't worked. It's essentially looking there. They think the solution is they need more control. They need to have more precision tuning over at down to the individual dollar level. Like you heard it when dad read the introduction and they talk about how they could turn off individual dollars to prevent a contamination in the financial system. They That's the level they think they're going to be operating at. And once they have that level of control, well, then we're going to have that pristine booming economy they've always promised us. Not to beat a dead horse, but another way of thinking about this is TradFi and central bankers are looking at Bitcoin and sometimes they dismiss it and they think it's a joke, but other times they're threatened by it and they think, gosh, this thing, it won't die and the price is going up and people seem really excited about it. What does it have? Why is it so good? And they think, oh, it must be the blockchain. It must be the technology because they just can't grasp the fact that the value is that it's peer-to-peer, is that no one controls it. These values are antithetical to their worldview, and so they don't see the real value proposition. And so central bank digital currencies 
like Chris said, they're nothing new. They're an extreme expression of a controlled, centralized system. They're taking our existing system and making it more controlled, more centralized, more bad. And the irony is that these innovations are in a way trying to copy Bitcoin, but completely missing the point. You know, that expression that strikes me is uh, they won't figure it out until there's more pain. Like they're going to really have to take this maximum control philosophy to the very, very nth degree, as far as they can possibly take it before they're going to try something else. Okay, New Year prediction time. What year are you going to lose access to traditional banking? Is it this year, next year, five years? Oh, you know, I mean, I don't know if you do. I actually think the commercial banks don't go away. So I think traditional banking as it is today will be very, I think when the CBDC goes online, it's going to be a very similar experience, except for now everything's on your debit card. There's no cash. See, I imagine that there's going to be increased KYC and compliance as a result of these systems. And so what I imagine happening is I just get more and more denied transactions from my bank saying, you're not allowed to make this payment because it ran across our risk algorithm. There was a conflict with the CBDC level risk algorithm. And that's going to happen more and more, at which point I'm going to close my bank account or they're going to seize my bank account because I won't say give them enough information on where every penny I own came from or something like that. Yeah. Or that, you know, the, at the CBDC, you know, th- you know, we'll have certain built in like threat protections, of course. And one of them is going to be any kind of transaction that might be used for money laundering or, you know, human trafficking. And so they'll just start labeling these outlets like MoonPay and others as enabling terrorists. And they'll just claim something and that's it. That's all it'll take. They'll go on a list, kind of like the no-fly list. And they'll be on that list forever. There'll be no process to remove or anything like that. And it'll just narrow down where you can buy from. Thankfully, there's still always going to be things like RoboSats on Tor where you can use a whole litany of different payment options, some of which are just like Amazon gift cards and whatnot. So for the creative and the daring, there will still be methods. But I agree. I think it could be more challenging. And I think it kind of happens more behind the scenes. The banks still get to pretend like they're, a, they're um, you know, it's you know what it's going to be like, Dad? I don't know if you've ever experienced like an MVNO reseller where uh, like there's MVNOs out there that they ride on top of AT&T or they ride on top of Verizon or T-Mobile or whatever it might be. Mobile virtual operator? Yeah. I use one. Their pricing is so low. It's crazy. Right. You get great deals, but there's all, they don't really have much influence over like network level problems or direction of the network. They don't really dictate like if Verizon has a throttling policy, they can tell you you have unlimited data, but you don't get unlimited unthrottled data because they have no control over what Verizon's network level throttle is doing. Right. I think that's what the banking scenario setup is going to be like. Banks are going to basically be MVNOs of the central bank and their CBDC is going to kind of be like their own, you know, commercial currency that they deal with. And that's the level they get to operate, but they won't have much influence over it. Just like MVNOs can give you a pretty good deal, but they don't get much influence over the core network, which they derive their product from. That makes a lot of sense to me. And gosh, I really appreciate that kind of technologist view because that never even occurred to me. But that is another sort of potential complication in the future, because we already deal with a bunch of technologies, be it mobile, virtual phone operators, or maybe virtual ISPs or someone who they sell you a service that's piggybacking on top of another service. So eventually you have a problem and it's hard to tell which layer of the stack it exists on and no one can fix it. So great. We're going to add that to money. The future is so bright. (laughs) 
You know, what's funny is I think if you ask most people today, Bitcoin would seem complicated. But in comparison to this monster that they're creating, Bitcoin is going to seem sublime and simple in its design. And I think people will see its brilliance compared to these like multi-armed monsters. I think we should leave it there. Pew, pew, pew. This episode's brought to you by the self-hosted pod. And I'll say Linux Unplugged. Both shows are doing the Jellyfin January Challenge. It's an open source alternative to Plex. And, you know, it's part of going sovereign with our data. And so for the month of January, we've all shut down our Plex servers and we're all trying out the open source Jellyfin server. And I'm also doing a bunch of other fun things like setting up proxies on Nix and whatnot. It's a lot of fun. Check out selfhosted.show and linuxunplugged.com or just search Jupiter Broadcasting. That's my podcast network <laughs> in your podcast app of choice. Remember, you can get in touch with the show, BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or at BitcoinDadPod on Twitter, though I'm rarely on Twitter, to be honest, so sorry if I haven't replied. Consider joining our Matrix channel using a Matrix client like Element. Details are in the show notes. Now, before our boost, I received an email and I'm anonymizing the details, but here is the shape of the problem. A listener wrote in and they had a significant amount of money to invest in Bitcoin. It was amount uh, it was an amount somewhere between let's just say $10,000 and I don't know, a million dollars, okay? Let's just work with a big range. And their question was, how do I actually invest this? Because I listened to the pod, I'd love to do it without KYC, but I don't have a huge amount of experience with Bitcoin and I don't kind of know where to start. So I thought that would be an interesting conversation to have. And if I can start it off, I would say that if you are starting from zero or very little Bitcoin, I think that if you have a bunch of money and you kind of need to, quote unquote, take a position, then I think that KYC is probably your only option, really, if you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars or, you know, even a million dollars or something like that. You need to find a kind of a broker, someone who's a bit professional to help you make that initial investment. And I'm not saying don't run your own node, don't have your own hardware wallet, don't take self-custody. I think you have to do that at the same time. But the thing is, it's very difficult to get the confidence to interact with Bitcoin as a sovereign Bitcoiner. Running your own node, getting a hardware wallet, managing your own wallets, these are things you have to invest time in. And you do not want to learn with a life-changing amount of money. That is my advice to you as someone who tried to do it in <laughs> yeah. one go and lost a lot of money. Okay, don't do that. So what I think you do is I think you do research on your KYC options. If you're in no rush, great. If you're in no rush, skip to the second part where we talk about how you do it on your own. But if you're in a rush, I think that, and in your, if you're in the United States, I think that I've heard businesses like Swan Bitcoin are very reputable. I've used the Cash App in the past, though I currently don't use any KYC services for Bitcoin. And it was an okay experience. I mean, I personally find giving up KYC information to be very upsetting. You know, you take a picture of your face. It just, it just feels like a violation, you know? But I think that if you kind of need to take a position, you sort of need an on-ramp that has the liquidity to let you do that and will hold your hand a little. Also, maybe um, 
CASA is an option, that collaborative custody business, because they do a lot of education. And so if you have a bunch of money, I honestly think it does make sense to buy a little education in the form of something like CASA or perhaps maybe something like Swan Bitcoin, because if you're investing a lot, they'll actually assign a special customer service rep who kind of holds your hand through the process and helps you not shoot yourself in the foot. Yeah, they have Swan Private for that. And uh, it's sort of a rep. I, I'd say, you know, if you're dealing with anything between 5000 to $10 million, I'd probably engage with a private rep in that. Uh, Swan Bitcoin would be one. River.com. Uh, River Financial also can offer some hands-on support. I think one thing it's just worth mentioning, and again, Dad and I can't give any financial advice, and we certainly aren't anybody to take financial advice from, but one thing to consider is the Bitcoin price can fluctuate a lot. Now, if you're buying for like 10 years down the road, maybe you're buying at 19000 today, it drops down to 13000 for a year, and then eventually climbs its way back up and goes to the moon, you're fine. You don't really care what price you bought it at. However, uh, if you do care, you may consider doing something more like large spread out transactions to kind of spread out the price on average. So, you know, not necessarily daily, but once a month, you buy $5,000. The next month, you buy $5,000. The next month, you buy $5,000. Uh, something like that. And again, Swan and River can help you do that. And perhaps that's something that you could consult with them and get their opinion on. There are also services where, and I think this is something you should really seriously consider, is if you're totally brand new to this, there are services where they will help custody your coins in a multi-sig. So they can't spend those coins. They can't they can't rehypothecate those coins, but they will help you with the custody. So that way there's a shared custody there. There's several outlets to do that as well. It could be worth considering. And then last but not least, when you do set something up, I would say keep in mind about uh, succession down the line. If, if there's somebody you want to give this investment to, if you're making a 10, 20 year investment and you want this, you want something perhaps documented as to what should happen with these funds and how somebody should get access to them if something were to happen to you, if it is a large amount of money. So don't forget that as well, since it can be a technically complicated subject. And these are not recommendations. I personally know people who've had good experiences with the businesses we mentioned. And I also know people who've had bad experiences and we can't control that. It's a centralized company. In some sense, they can't even control the experience you have because they're regulated. I think why we mentioned them is because they're Bitcoin only companies. And so during this kind of crappy bear market, I think you take on a little bit less counterparty risk if you deal with a company that only works in Bitcoin. See our show notes for reasons why that's the case. Now, what if you want to go no KYC? Okay. So a prerequisite is you need to have your own Bitcoin infrastructure, which means you need to be running your own node, your own wallet that connects to that node. That might mean that you have to run an Electrum server. There are two Electrum servers that are pretty standard now, Electrum Rust server and Fulcrum. An Electrum server is a program that connects to a Bitcoin node and indexes the transactions so that it can look up transactions very quickly for a wallet. There are also wallets like the Bitcoin Core wallet that do not need this index. It just takes them about 10 to 20 minutes to scan the whole blockchain. So if you're setting up your own node at home, honestly, the first time you do it, I would suggest just getting an old computer with eight gigs of RAM, who cares about the CPU, throw a one terabyte SSD in there and just install Ubuntu with a graphical interface and install Bitcoin with the graphical interface and just use the wallet right there. It's an amazing setup. Now that is probably going to be a hot wallet unless you get a hardware wallet that keeps the Bitcoin private key off of that computer. 
And if you do have a hot wallet on a computer, it means that that computer really should not be used for anything other than Bitcoin. Do not browse the web on it. Do not have apps installed. Don't install games. Don't download things. Don't torrent. Don't do anything like that. Just do Bitcoin on it. That's just very reasonable practice. And if you are going to have trouble doing that, well, now you need to do something more complicated. You need to create a headless server for your Bitcoin that you won't be tempted to do other things on. Or you need to use a security operating system like Cubes OS that can run Bitcoin in a virtual machine and give you another virtual machine to browse the web on. So this stuff gets complicated very quickly. The point is a prerequisite to doing private Bitcoin and stuff is having your own node with your own wallet. Once you have that, you can investigate things like RoboSats, which Chris has mentioned, and BISC, which I've mentioned before. And these are peer-to-peer exchanges, essentially. They don't take custody of Bitcoin. There are security models uh, in, in BISC, especially. There is the risk of losing funds. And oddly enough, you need Bitcoin to get started on BISC. But how do you do that if you don't have Bitcoin? Well, it means you have to join the BISC community or join the Bitcoin dad pod community and talk with people. And eventually, like you'll find someone who will sell you Bitcoin for cash in an envelope or something like that. And in a community like this, maybe there's enough trust to do a transaction like that where you're mailing cash and someone sends you Bitcoin. That was how Bitcoin was traded in 2010. That's how they did it. I, f- I feels like there's a lightning bot that could solve this, right? You have a lightning bot in a chat room. Two people agree somehow that you just, you know, have a little escrow somewhere and the lightning bot just sends it to you. The problem is the legacy payment. It's the legacy payment that's the problem. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, of course. You're not dealing on sats on both ends, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, it gets really complicated. We can talk more about that in the future. But, you know, this is sort of the beginning of that conversation. So maybe we leave it there. I think, you know, what you started with was if you're doing a very large investment, KYC, just because of the size of the transaction, doing something that requires identifying yourself, know your customer, KYC is probably going to be required unless you were to spread it out over many small purchases. The issue is the fiat transaction. It's the fiat side that requires a intermediary. That's the problem. Once you have a bunch of Bitcoin, you never need to deal with this fiat system again if you don't want to. That's pretty powerful, but getting there is hard. A coin join could be an option down the road if it was something you were super concerned about, about being able to you know track your keys back to yourself. It may be that this is a 20-year investment for you and you don't intend to sell them, and maybe you don't care. Maybe you do. So you just have to maybe start there. Start there and then look into some of the Bitcoin-only companies that can offer you services. Most of them have some private services available. And then you, know, you could also entertain the idea of standing up your own node, your own wallet, and you could also play with that stuff simultaneously while you are averaging into Bitcoin, maybe through Swan or River. I was nodding as you were talking, Chris. <laughs> well then, is it time for boost? Our first boost comes from Akonda, okay. who sent a total of 2,895 sats. Many thanks for making this podcast. Oh, you're welcome. I started with BTC in 2020 as a hobby, but my wife got dollar signs in her eyes during the following bull run, so we may have bought a little too much at the top. Hey, it happens to (laughs) all of us. I was also listening too much to the more investment-leaning podcasts, so did the rounds of exchanges and alts before finally getting shot of them all in favor of just stacking sats on my hardware wallet. What a great progression. Yeah. Just an aside, I was FOMOing at the top two. I mean, I was so jealous of everyone who was doing the crypto lending and getting 5%, 8% on their Bitcoin. 
I knew it was stupid, but I was still like poisonously jealous and felt like I was missing out. Like, honestly. (laughs) And if you listen to that and cancel listening to the pod, I understand because who is this guy to talk, right? If he's such an idiot. The point I'm trying to make is everybody feels that way. I bought my son's first sats in December 2019, which uh, I think was low 50s, mid 40s in price at that point. And so he loves to rib me about it to this day that I bought towards I bought his sats towards the top of the market. (laughs) Boomer buy. (laughs) <laughs> Akondic continues. I find it hard seeing many in the tech podcasting space dismissing BTC and lumping all digital assets together as scams. I know I could make some arguments against the things they say, but I don't really have enough in-depth knowledge and they can be so resistant that they are likely to just block anyone who says anything about it. Wow. We talk about this all the time and experience the exact same thing, by the way, especially if you own some yourself, as that gives you a bias towards your investment. I guess that's someone dismissing your points. They're just saying you're a bag holder. For now, I've just adopted the first rule of Fight Club until things improve. (laughs) You don't talk about your Bitcoin bag. That's a really good rule, by the way. Everyone should follow that. Yeah, it's not a bad OPSEC rule to begin with and uh, not a bad idea in a bear market. People might want to hear about in a bull market. Yeah, I've I've struggled with this. Um, I think it's a shame. I think what happens is as you go through life and particularly in the tech space, you you learn very complicated systems and you become really educated in technology. And as a result, you become very confident in your opinion. And so when something comes along that is technology adjacent, like cryptocurrency, uh, I think it's a pretty reasonable assumption to just assume you can, oh, yeah, okay, I get it. And, you know, you've looked at it and your heuristics have applied from your years of experience and you understand what it is. And therefore you are now, you now are somehow entitled to have an opinion and speak authoritatively on the subject. And they do that within, you know, 10 minutes and they never take even an hour to look into it because why bother? They've looked at it at a surface level and they've determined it's not worth their time. And I I definitely, I definitely even see this in the Linux space, which I was surprised by since I thought the Linux space would be a little more receptive to open source software that decentralizes and removes us away from companies that are pushing commercial lock-in solutions, but uh, that has not been the case. And then the other thing that happens is when a podcaster or a YouTuber or a blogger or an influencer, when an influenza, when whoever they are, when they take an anti-Bitcoin or an anti-NFT or an anti-crypto stance, when they do that, they can create kind of capture by their audience because they're sort of self-selecting now for people who don't like those things. And so if they were to, at some point in the future, try to incorporate boosts or talk positively about Bitcoin or or something to that effect, they would get an extremely large amount of blowback from a very vocal minority of their audience who is now listening to them because they were anti-Bitcoin or they were anti-NFT or they were whatever. And so they get captured by their audience and it just sort of they have to double down on it. And it's a gross cycle that I wish humans were better at breaking, but they are not. Woodcarver came in with 12,002 sats. First time booster. That's great. All thanks to you. There doesn't seem to be any way to buy sats directly here in Sweden, but exchanging BTC to LBTC was super easy using the fixed float. No login or KYC even required. What are your thoughts on that type of service? Fixed float, eh? Is this anything you're familiar there with, Dad? I am. I think that fixed float and side swap are services that do atomic exchange of two crypto tokens, so Bitcoin to liquid Bitcoin, 
or Bitcoin to Ethereum. And I think they're great. I think they can be expensive because they charge probably at least 1% of the transaction cost. They are centralized, so they could steal your money when you send it to them. But the way they work is you make one transaction, and as that confirms, they make a transaction back to you on a different chain. So I think it's a great service. I think that they are a target for regulation. So regulators will come after them because they're not doing KYC. They don't work with KYC. It's not useful if there's KYC. Otherwise, it's just a regular exchange. So I love them at the same time. Probably your last transaction with them, they will steal the amount and then try to shotgun KYC you or something. So just know that getting into the relationship. How pleasant. I also like the name Woodcarver. I feel like I recall a sci-fi villain named Woodcarver. (laughs) I like the name too. Adopting Bitcoin sent in, is this a total of 8,400 sets? Just noticed in the new Fountain update that streaming sats to podcasts with Fountain is quite pricey on fees. Sending 11 sats to a pod costs six sats in fees. That's more than 50%. Switching to Boost to see how that goes. Great rip as usual. Cheers. Thanks so much, Adopting Bitcoin. And that is true. That is very expensive. So I think that we've kind of cooled a little on recommending Fountain as your default podcasting 2.0 app, which is unfortunate. It would, it would be great if there was just a default app you could tell everyone to use and it would be fine. But, you know, that is a lot. They just did an update. So it might be worth checking out again, version six. And they're doing another update to kind of tweak some of those settings. So all of this is kind of in flux. That's one thing I think we have to consider with Fountain is they develop very rapidly. I think they're probably the quickest, fastest developed podcasting 2.0 app. And they put out an update and sometimes they have to like revert or change course. But they do seem to be listening to feedback. They do collect feedback and make changes very rapidly. So sometimes it's like by the time we even talk about it, they've already made the fix. So that's something to consider. I've been trying out their new update just because they revamped the UI and they also added MoonPay integration. So now you can purchase sats directly within Fountain, which is, I think, huge because you just go in there, pulls up a screen. If you already have a MoonPay account, if, you ever, if you've ever used MoonPay once before, the process is like 25 seconds. It takes you know a couple of minutes for the on-chain transaction, obviously. But then after that, you know, after a couple of confirmations, it just shows up in your Fountain wallet. It's really easy. So I got to give them credit for pushing those things forward. At the same time, I feel more comfortable recommending Podverse long term. I like Albi as a back end better. And the nice thing about Albi is you can take that to other apps. You can take it to the podcast index. You can take it to other websites. Albi's sort of a central wallet that you can use across many apps and services, whereas, you know, Fountain has its own custodial wallet that you have to use. And it's fine because I only keep a couple bucks worth of sats in there at any given time. But I still prefer the Podverse approach of integrating Albi. Albi, the MetaMask for Lightning. No, yeah, that's true, I suppose. But uh, unlike MetaMask, Albi fully open source and you can use your own node. You can have all of that controlled by yourself. MetaMask is not open source? Oh, I don't know. But I mean, uh, Albi is. I know that. And you can use your own node, which I really appreciate with Albi. So you don't have to use any of their custodial services or anything like that. You can just basically use their browser as a front end to the Lightning Network. Again, wouldn't recommend you store $10,000 in there, but five bucks. Yeah, I'm doing that. I'll probably just use it as a sort of like a checking account, a small boosting account for a while. 10, 15 bucks at a time in there. Adopting Bitcoin continues. People who are dumb enough to eat at those fast food chains are the same who fall for ship coins. Perfect audience match. He didn't say ship, though. I said he said something else. He's referring to uh, the uh, Chipotle taking all those crazy coins. 
last week uh, that we covered. Um, you know, I'll admit, I just had myself the Popeye's chicken sandwich for the first time. Never had that. That thing is delicious. So every now and then I get tempted by the fast food. Everyone weekends sometimes and eats ice cream or a yeah, yeah. slightly oh, disgusting sure. fast food burger that somehow tastes good. Definitely the ice cream one. Linux Teamster came in with 5,000 sats. And I just uh, as an aside, Teamster sent a bunch of boosts into the JB shows this week, including Coder, Self-Hosted, Office Hours, Linux Action News, Linux Unplugged. So like, seriously, thank you, Linux Teamster. It was really nice to see that. Uh, he goes on to say, loving the learning all about the Bitcoin. I still know very little and I'm still not quite comfortable with self-custody yet, but I'd love to get there. I need a whole Docker Compose file with setup instructions. But for now, I'm using the Cash app and sending via Lightning to Fountain is super easy and simple. You Nice Teamster. You know, the, I mean, the nice thing about the Cash App is I think Jack's probably a, a decent Bitcoiner. And, you know, they're not doing a bunch of the ship coins. They're they're just sticking to Bitcoin. So if you're going to do a custodian, I suppose that's probably not a bad one. And I like that that workflow is so easy for you. Rusta Casta Versa boosted in with 4,000 sats. Lots of talk about the Fountain model. Hasn't Brave had something like this for years to reward creators that opt in? What is the difference between the ecosystem of Drave versus the open nature of Lightning? I think that Brave might have had a attention token and also potentially an altcoin associated with their browser. And it just runs into this token runs into the same issues as the FTT token issued by FTX, the BNB token issued by Binance. The list goes on. It's a thing that is money like that they're creating out of thin air and then they're trying to get you to think it's money and change your behavior in some way. The difference with Lightning is Lightning is a way to send Bitcoin around. And now we can create financial models and behaviors and technologies on top of that. We're not creating a fake value thing and then trying to convince other people that it's worth something. And I think, you know, Rust, what you've kind of uh, keyed in on there is there's something about streaming value for somebody's attention, right? Or something in there. Like if you go read a good article from an independent blogger, it's a nice idea that instead of you getting a whole bunch of ads, you earn a little bit of something and the creator of that great post earns a little bit of something. And that idea does seem a little bit similar to the fountain model, where when you're listening for the first bit, you get streams some sats, uh, which comes from advertising in fountain. But yeah, like dad said, though, the difference is the uh, the basic attention token or bat. Uh, not only is it a very small, you know, pre-mined insider token kind of deal, but it also is very, very limited in where you can even exchange it. And all of those are KYC. All of those are centrally controlled. And I have experimented with it a couple of times just out of curiosity to see how it functions. And both times I found that the integration with like Gemini Exchange broke constantly. Like the experience was also pretty poor. So I think you're, you end up with a piss poor asset and you end up with a piss poor experience. And so if it was dealing with sats, I'd, have, I'd probably be running as my main browser because sats are a genuine scarce asset that is not pre-mined, that is not centrally controlled by a cabal. <laughs> it's truly decentralized, mathematically provable money. And I want those. I don't want somebody's made out of thin air token based on, you know, some random uh, value that they assign me. Absolutely. Well said. Crypto Kyle, I think, came in potentially with two boosts, and maybe I didn't get one of them because he sent us 2,223 sats, which is usually an iteration on a row of ducks to indicate two boosts. 
I now speak uh, boost and ease, apparently. But uh, Crypto Kyle says, in further research, perhaps he's referring to a boost more recently, it seems that LND may also require the TX index equals one in its config file. Another note, I would love for a dedicated value for value episode discussing how to handle things from a business side, potential pitfalls, reinvest in the business and the tax implications. That's a big that is a big topic. I, you know, I like that idea, Crypto Kyle, but I wonder if it wouldn't be a pretty narrow appeal for the audience. We might need more signal on that one. The fellow who talked about Vexlux before. A topical expert? Yes. There are some Eastern European Bitcoiners who've been doing hacky Bitcoin co-working and business spaces for a long time. So that might be the person to talk to. We'll have to put that on our schedule. Interesting. Very good. Our final boost comes from Cass Heland, who sent in 3,690 sats. When the fees are very, very high, the mempool very full, would it be possible to fall out of the mempool if a transaction failed? When I do, let's say, a one sat per VByte transaction, thanks for the work. So uh, yes, but the thing is, there isn't one mempool. There's many different mempools. So the standard mempool, I think, has a max size of 300 megabytes. And so when it fills up with transactions, it starts deleting the smallest value transactions. So most nodes will have the default mempool size, but then there might be some weird nodes out there that have a default mempool size of one gigabyte, and that node would still maintain your transaction. So if fees spiked and the network got swamped and then like traffic disappeared, your transaction could theoretically appear again in a day or two and and suddenly actually execute. And so this is why replace by fee transactions are so great because with the RBF, you can resend that transaction with a higher fee. And there are sort of multiple models. There's replace by fee, there's child pays for parent, a lot of uh, options there. But the TLDR is that a transaction in the mempool is not confirmed. Until it's in a block, it's not a confirmed Bitcoin transaction. So anything could happen, sort of. <laughs> yeah. So surprise, maybe a little bit later. Good question. I like it. It's it's, uh, it's nice to get a good question in the boost. All the boosts are super appreciated. Comments, just encouragement. Uh, your value for value is much appreciated. And of course, uh, we did mention Albi. We mentioned Fountain. Podverse, I think, is a fantastic cross-platform. Totally open source. Podcasting Toronto client. And of course, if you don't want to switch, that's where Albi can be nice because you can actually just boost from the podcast index listing for the Bitcoin Dad Pod on there. Just search it up and then you've got a boost integrated right there in the webpage now. It's really cool. Thank you so much to everyone who sent in a boost below the limit. We read them all, though we don't read them on the pod. Very appreciated. Yeah. And some again, again this week, some some boosts with no message, just, you know, nice little, little amount of sats. It's just great, too. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on January 13th, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here, as always, with... Oh, it's me. It's Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. 